The human spirit is unconquerable. We are individuals and we are sovereign, born with unlimited potential, gifted from our creator. Our mission is to break free from the systems that bind us. I volunteer as tribute. We strive for peace and prosperity and overcome all challenges, roadblocks, and obstacles. We are empowered because we think for ourselves and we act for ourselves. We are self-reliant and independent, but guided by the wisdom of those who share our values. What possible difference can I make? There is no government, no ruler, nor ideas that are able to stop us. We are driven to succeed because we seek political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. It's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. This is Mike Corbell, and you are listening to The Invictus Mind. Well, hello, and welcome back to the Invictus Mind podcast. It's been way too long, but I'm feeling great after my extended vacation and summer break. I want to first apologize to all of my fans who formerly listened to this show. You're probably like, hey, what happened to that Invictus guy? I really liked this program. And if you are brand new, I appreciate it. This isn't a current events program, so there is no need to catch up with what you missed. But of course, if you do want to check out any of the previous episodes, you can do that on any of your favorite podcatchers and on YouTube. This show is really sort of an evergreen type of show, meaning that topics can relate to any specific period in your life. But more importantly, it's a show about the future. On the Invictus Mind, we talk about how to better ourselves, how to become unconquerable, and how to position ourselves to discover and magnify what it means to have political freedom, financial freedom, and spiritual freedom. We sometimes get philosophical, sometimes religious, and sometimes just pragmatic. All right. Well, I wanted to interview this guy for quite some time. We connected just before I left on my vacation to California. But since we didn't talk then, I wanted to wait until I was in a place to relaunch this podcast. This guy is the epitome of what it means to be Invictus. He is a brilliant man who has, in recent months, come out on his own. Of course, he is a co-host of the Wealth, Power, and Influence podcast with Jason Stapleton, but he also has his very own program on YouTube entitled King Pilled. Today, we are going to discuss what that means, as well as some other ideas that are possibly new to the Liberty Movement, but I do feel they are pertinent to the future for those who are wondering what the heck is going on these days. Up next is my discussion with Matthew Erickson. All right. Sitting here with Matt Erickson. How you doing, Matt? I am doing good. Thanks for having me here, man. I appreciate you connecting with me. I, I know I've been trying to get you on the podcast for about three months now. So I'm I can be a waiting. hard guy to get to get a hold of. So I appreciate your patience. <laughs> but you, you've been very busy, you know, obviously with your work with uh, wealth, power, and influence with Jason Stapleton. But uh, you've uh, you've hit the libertarian podcast circles pretty strong. I have. Yeah, it's been it's been kind of wild. I I didn't really expect to wind up here when I, I don't know, almost a year ago now, I sat down and started doing um, f- basically just kind of just, I don't know, diarrhea of the mouth kind of as that's not too colorful. Uh, <laughs> and with, with my buddy, Steve Messina, he and I had been chatting a lot and uh, personally, and I was talking to him about all this mold bug stuff I was reading and all these other, other subjects that it seemed like nobody was talking about these things. And I was like, this is, this is really interesting. This is all super relevant to the libertarian view of the world. And, and, and everybody who I know, who's all interested in Liberty and all these kinds of like, this is, this is super relevant. This is, this is like fundamental basic stuff that it seems like nobody's talking about. And so he was like, he was like, you have to start talking about this publicly, man. We need to, we need to just start talking about this publicly. And so I was like, all right. So we just started doing a, a, a YouTube channel and, uh, 
And it just kind of, at first we, we didn't even have a name or anything. We just sat down and just kind of just talked for two or three hours kind of around the election stuff and everything. And then kind of gradually morphed into basically a podcast and a YouTube show podcast um, called King Pilled. And uh, yeah, some people, different people started hearing it, started listening it, listening to it, sharing it. And eventually I got invited on a couple of larger shows, Pete Quinones and uh, um, uh, Liberty Lockdown in the space of about a week. So that was a huge, huge jump in audience and everything all of a sudden. And I said some controversial stuff and lots of people got upset and, <laughs> and then, then my following just kind of exploded. And so now I'm someone who says that he has a following, which makes me feel kind of weird, but uh, such is life, I suppose. We all got to get there somehow, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'm not going to try to offend you when I say this, but I've only seen half of one of your King Pill shows. It's because, not, it doesn't offend me at all. <laughs> <laughs> because it's on YouTube. And honestly, most of my content I hear through podcasts as I'm driving in the car most of the time when I listen to it. So uh, I know you from listening to Jason Stapleton. I know you from those other shows you were on. So uh, you'll have to tell a little bit about what King Pilled is. You mentioned, you know, obviously it's a YouTube channel. Are you going to be going on a, uh, an audio podcast? Yeah. Yeah. The people who've, who've been following me for a while have uh, probably really gotten tired of hearing me say this, but yes, the audio podcast is coming. All the back end stuff that we do, I like, I have to, I have to have the time to carve out to do all of that. And uh, there's a couple specific hurdles I need to get over. And with everything else in my life being super busy, I just haven't set aside the time to do it yet. So I understand that I'm, I'm probably losing people listening like yourself. You know, I understand that there's people who aren't listening because it's not um, in that better avenue. But for, for the time being, I can only do what I can do. So the, yeah, the audio, the audio podcast is coming. Well, if you do hear this on the audio podcast, my podcast, uh, you can check out the YouTube video on my own show. Matthew has a great setup in his studio and everything like that. He's got the K for King Pill up there. So a little better video than, uh, than on my hand, but uh, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I wish that all I had was just the, just the very simple stripped down, just me and the camera, because all this other stuff, try to maintain it and keep it all up and all that is kind of a, kind of a hassle, but I, I, I guess I, I, I do things to myself that I don't necessarily want to. <laughs> Great. Matthew, I invited you on the podcast because uh, I'm going to classify you as uh, what I call a philosopher. There's, there's, take that. There, there's, there's quite a lot of people who have voices, uh, particularly in the libertarian world, and I'm trying to uh, veer off just a strictly libertarian audience. But uh, as a philosopher, you, uh, you've made me think uh, a lot about a lot of things over the last uh, probably year or so. I mean, since I've been listening to you with Jason Stapleton, you've always had some great ideas, but uh, just over the last year, particularly since the election, um, you've been wrong some things, but uh, I do appreciate that when you are wrong, you, you kind of go back and say, okay, here's why I was wrong, why I was wrong, and you don't double down on your ignorance. So I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It's a to me to, to double down on it and to like kind of have this open secret that like everyone knows that it was wrong, but I've never actually admitted it. That's even more embarrassing than, than just admitting, yeah, I was wrong. I read this wrong. And, and, and here's why I like, I go back then I try to understand why did I read it wrong? What does that mean? And, and sometimes I'll realize that the reason that I read it wrong was because there was something even deeper that I wasn't seeing or, or wasn't getting. And I wouldn't have seen or, or understood that concept if I hadn't first been wrong about something. I heard a couple of years ago, Scott Adams said, to like a way of keeping yourself honest kind of in a way of focusing your mind is to make public pronouncements that are like categorical. It's going to be proven true or false. And you're going to be on the record with a, with a position on it. He said, do that because 
if you can handle being wrong publicly and it's not going to crush you, then you're going to learn a lot about yourself. And um, the, a nice side effect of it is that when you are accurate with something, people will notice. And, um, and it, it hones your own ability to identify and embrace and proclaim the truth. And then like by, by extension, it can do the same for other people. So that's something that I've tried to practice. I try to make specific claims, make um, specific um, projections or predictions. And then I just hope that I don't get too many wrong in a row and start just being someone who shouldn't be making public predictions. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the first step is admitting it, like you said, but uh, you know, were some of the things that you were right, or at least I, I believe you're right. Maybe, maybe that's not the correct term. Maybe I, I agree with your philosophy. And so right or wrong is in the eye of the beholder, probably. Uh, that's true. You, that's true. <laughs> When you started talking about uh, the the book, The Machiavellians, and uh, you recommended that on one of the podcasts you were on, and I read that, and wow, it really did change my life as far as looking at the world. Uh, you came up, maybe, I don't know if you came up with this term or it was it was coined somewhere, this word post-libertarian. Is, yeah, is that, is yeah. That, is, that a, is that a Matt-ism? <laughs> uh, that's, I don't. I don't think I coined it. I, I think I said something about being post-libertarian, like thinking about being like what what comes next it feels like libertarianism isn't the end of the road it feels like uh we we talk about like the 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 the, the liberty bus or something and it's like some people just want to ride the bus further and people have this understanding that like pure libertarianism is the end of the road and there's nothing that, that nothing there's no no more truths like you've hit you've hit rock bottom there's nowhere further to dig and i feel like there is like there's something else there's something further but the I, I, I've been kind of shying away from calling myself post-libertarian because I think that it, it conveys the wrong idea. And ultimately, um, you, you don't control the way other people perceive your messaging. So if other people are perceiving your messaging wrongly, you need to change um, for their sake. You can't expect them to change for your sake. So mm. um, messaging is in the eye of the beholder. So I, to me, people that hear post-libertarian, it seems like they think uh, this is something like doing away with libertarianism or that we're rejecting libertarianism or something to that effect. And, and, and that's not where I see myself. I see myself as having continued the same trajectory that took me through, um, you, you know, from neoconservative to kind of wishy-washy, liberal, like progressive kind of, to libertarian, to minarchist, to ANCAP. Like I, that, that trajectory hasn't stopped. It's continued. So I feel like I'm getting deeper and deeper into the essence of, of liberty, that I'm not abandoning it or moving beyond it. So for that reason, I've, I've, I've kind of, since post-libertarian has become more popularized and people have started attaching to it a specific meaning, I've kind of shied away from it in the same way that I've shied away from calling myself a libertarian even, because that's a loaded term. Or another one is NRX, neo-reactionary, which is if you've get gotten into James Burnham, then you've kind of gotten a, a bit of exposure to neo-reactionary thought. It's another ideology that I don't necessarily, or a perspective even, I mean, that's not a full ideology, it's a perspective. And I don't want to fully identify with that because I keep finding myself identifying with something and being like, okay, here we go. I'm planting my flag here. This is, this is, this is the truth. I've, I've, I've stumbled upon the truth and I'm now going to protect it and cherish it forever. And I'm, several months later, I'm like, okay, well, actually there was more. I, I, I discovered, I kept reading and I learned more. And so I need to, I can't identify that way anymore. I need to, I need to kind of pull back and I need to read and research and try to understand better and then come up with a new thing. So I am kind of caught in this tension where I want a tribe. I want a community of people 
who think like me, who we all share the same values. We all have the same goals. We all want to live in the same world and we all see ourselves as living in the same world. And yet at the same time, I don't want to identify myself. I like, I struggle to identify myself with a specific belief system because I never know when I'm going to learn something new that's going to change my perspective on the world. So I'm, I've, I've gotten myself to a point where I try to have the fewest axioms about the world as I possibly can. Things that I just have just declare and I take on faith and I don't really question. I try to have as few of those as possible. And then I just try to read and gain as much knowledge and insight about anything as I can. So I I know it's probably not super satisfying for people. It may seem, may seem like wishy-washy or something that I won't pin myself down on something, but that's kind of my thinking behind that. Well, that's why I called you a philosopher, I think. Uh, <laughs> you, <know. Fair. laughs> you never stop thinking, right? If, if that's the kind of person you are, you, you always want to be in search of meaning, in search of truth. But you know, you mentioned that you want to find some kind of tribe. That's where I think people need to have some kind of identification right there, some kind of label, right? So like, if you're constantly evolving your, your label, then how do you identify your tribe? Right. It's like your, your tribe is the people who are constantly evolving their label. <laughs> um, and that's, that's one thing where I've said that I was just tweeting about this with people this morning, that individualism versus collectivism, I think, is a false dichotomy. I think that it's a, it's a false choice because functionally, when, when you leave the area, area of theory and you go into the world of reality with actual praxis, collectivism and individualism are, are the same thing individualism manifests itself collectively. You get a collective of people who are all like, I'm an individual. I identify with this category of beliefs where I'm an individual. So ultimately you begin acting like the imaginary hypothetical person who would be a self-contained individual. And you join yourself together with other people who are doing the same thing. And what individualism is to you is determined collectively by a group of people who are all thinking about the same thing. So I've said that human beings aren't individualist or collectivist, they're tribalist. That's kind of where, like, like that's the, the tool, I guess, that I'm using right now is I'm assuming humans are tribalists. So they, they function within the context of a tribe. You're never born as an atomized human. When you're born, you aren't an individual, you're a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister. And someday you'll be a parent or an aunt or an uncle. You're a grandson, your granddaughter. You are identified with your family when you're born. That is your identity. You're never an atomized individual because then what makes you you is something that you accumulate by from the society around you. It's uh, uh, Heidegger referred to the, the to throneness, where you're 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 thrown into reality, and you don't start with like a blank slate that you get to choose your own outcome. There's a constrained set of outcomes. Your options that you have to choose from are constrained. They're limited. It's focused. You have a limited set, a limited number of, of possible things that you can do. What you do control is which of those you choose. So your options are limited for you, but you get to choose which of those options you're going to choose. Ultimately, that's where the rubber meets the road, quite literally, um, when, when your thoughts become your actions. So there's this concept of belief and, and as Westerners, we tend to think of belief in a very intellectualized way. We're like, well, what do I believe? Someone will say, well, what do you believe? And you'll give them a list of facts, a list of, da- a list of details, specific data points that you like or that seem good to you. But what you what believe is actually an active thing. So when you act, this is an Austrian economics thing, when you, when you act, 
you are making a statement of belief mm-hmm. because the reason that you're acting is because you believe that acting will change something. So there's the, the very act of acting is loaded with meaning. When you act, you make a statement of belief. So your, your beliefs are the things that motivate your actions. They're the, the things that are implied by your actions. That's what you actually believe. So human beings um, are, are, are not individuals that are completely isolated from the world and um, exist as a single um, self-contained, self-existent unit. There's actually, there is something that is a single self-contained, self-existent unit. And we are imagers of that to operate from the Christian perspective. No, you're a Christian guy. Yeah. We are imagers of that, but there, there is one person and we derive our personhood from that person. In that sense, then we are part of a body and you get this literally in, in, in scriptures, the body of Christ. And this is a, this is a literal term that we are the body of the, of the logos of the, of the uh, personhood. Mm-hmm. We are embodied personhood reflecting that, that, uh, that one person. Um, so this, this, this breakdown that people have split into, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a, it's a, it's like a dialectic that is taking us to sort of an inevitable outcome. And I see people like identifying with that. They're like, well, I'm the, I'm part of the collective of individuals. It's like, okay, well, are you part of the collective or are you, are you the individual? Mm-hmm. Well, really you're both at the same time because it's like, is God one or is God three? He's Yes, he is one and three, and we are we are individual and collective simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So this is why I say human beings are are tribal, and I'm looking for my tribe. The tribe that I want to be a part of is the people who value the things that I value, and I don't I don't I, I don't mind saying that I have a bias that I'm not searching for neutrality because neutrality doesn't exist. Sure. I want I, I I'm very biased, and I want a a very specific. Um, a very specific set of, of, of people with a very specific set of values around me. And that's where I kind of, that's where you asked about King pill. That's where that came from. I just, we were talking one day and we said something about King pilled. I said, like, we need to, we need to King pill these guys or something. And, and Steven was like, Oh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. King. I was like, Oh, King pilled. Oh, Oh, that's, that, I, I like that. That's actually kind of cool. That's very it's pithy. Um, so, so I guess I get to determine what King pilled is. So I don't have to worry about identifying myself to something outside. I just get to continually redefine it. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Matthew, you said a whole lot there, but I, I want to throw some out here because I, I interviewed a, a, a person and I made a mistake of assuming that they knew somebody else in our circle, if you want to call it that. So I, uh, I had a chance to speak with David Gornoski. Are you familiar with him? I love David Gornoski. Okay, great. Because I asked him if he actually knew Vin Armani. And he did not. And I have not had a chance to interview Vin yet, but uh, between Vin and, and David Gronoski and yourself has really kind of shaped my philosophy. And I don't know if I'm going to join your group or not, Matt, if you want me in there, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm picking up what you're laying down there. Good, good. I'm glad. Those, are, those two guys have been a major, major influence on me, though, speaking of things that are, are um, metaphorical or metaphysical, um, all the meta things, that's where they they really specialize in that. And uh, Vin, with his perspective, like you've got to read the book, Render Unto Caesar, Vin's, Vin's newest book. It's, it's an absolute masterpiece. It's not long and it's very straightforward. And it, it, he, he starts from first principles and, uh, and, and builds out his kind of the theory of reality. And he, 
he incorporates, he's coming from a, as a guy who's being catechized into the Orthodox church as he's writing this. Um, and well, I mean, I think he started writing it before um, his, his catechism began, but he was being catechized as he was finishing the book. So there's definitely a distinct Orthodox Christian feel to it. Um, he also kind of, he tries to write, he, he almost tries to describe the Christian God from a secular standpoint, from like a, like a, like a Hellenistic secular standpoint and uh, trying to show that the terms that they're using are they're, they're, they're looking at the same thing. They're just describing it in a different manner, but fundamentally they're both, they're both viewing reality and reality is manifesting the nature of God. So they're, they're viewing and observing the nature of God, even though they might not necessarily be, be detailing that. And so he takes that and then um, it's called prophecy, prophet, and proof of work in the dim age. So he coined the term, the dim age. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was a big influence on me, this idea of, of the, this, this kind of waxing and waning of materialism, this back and forth between material and mystical, material and mystical, that the material ultimately leads you to the mystical, which leads you back to the material. And, and uh, so that made a really big impact on me, beginning to try to view the world through that lens, which is what led me to, to like studying Orthodox Christianity. And I'm in the middle of that now. And then David Gornoski talking about uh, mimetic theory, Girardi and mimetic theory and an understanding political dynamics through that lens, understanding that human beings, speaking of human beings being tribal, that's that's part of, of Gerard's analysis is that human beings function as a tribe. And ultimately you get this, um, this, this, this drive of mimetic desire where people identify what they want by observing what other people want and mimicking them. And that ultimately this leads to conflict and conflict doesn't happen between diametric opposites. Conflict happens between people that are very close. Mm, you get far sure. more, there's far more fighting within the libertarian party than there is between the libertarian party and the communist party, because we fight the people who are close to us. We're, we're competing for the same airspace. And so ultimately conflict reaches a tension point where someone is sacrificed Mm. That sacrifice is the scapegoat. And then everyone says, okay, we're going to, that's, he's going to be the one who was sacrificed. We're all going to ceremonially, whether we do this like literally or just kind of subconsciously, psychologically, we say, we're going to put the sins of everybody on that scapegoat. And he's, he's sent out from among us, the goat of Azazel, he's sent out from among us. And therefore going forward, we're, we're now united as the people who transcended this conflict by putting it all upon the scapegoat. So that, that magical scapegoating thing that happens, this happens repeatedly over and over and over again within human society, the scapegoating effect, we recognize it. And that's part of what the, the gospel drives at. Uh, so, so what, what David Gronoski does, I mean, if you've talked to him, you know, this David Gronoski does is he, he marries like libertarian thought and mimetic theory and, um, and, and, and then shows how this is all kind of a derivation or continuation of the, of the story of Christianity. So those, yeah, those are two of the most, influential people that um, on my own view of the world. Yeah, I agree with that. And it, it just, uh, it opens up a whole new avenue of, of just thought process and uh, why we are here kind of thing. And, and you can go down the philosophical road if you want. And, and I'm, I'm kind of that kind of thinker anyway, but um, you know, I've been having a, a conversation with my wife and I bring her up because she's always asking if I'm talking about her on social media or on my podcast. So I'm going to bring her up here. Her and I met uh, in the on the Fourth of July in 2016. We were both marching for the the uh, Libertarian Party in a parade. Huh, that's cool. And so I spent half my uh, time like being a quasi activist in those days, and she's always been a political activist her whole life. And uh, as I'm stumbling onto this new dim age, as Vin called it, and this age of mysticism, I'm thinking, okay, 
maybe politics isn't really the avenue I want to be on, you know, and I think this is probably the biggest area of concern within the Libertarian Party. And I'm going to just throw it out there and, and what you're talking about. You know, I haven't heard the, uh, the debate between Angela McArdle and yourself, but I'm sure it was a good one. You know, going back to some of the things uh, that were said about, uh, you know, for example, Dave Smith. And is he wasting time in a political party or is there a different uh, idea behind there? So I'm always I'm always uh, talking with my wife. I go, I don't want to spend any more time in the political arena because we're not we're just spinning our wheels. We're not going anywhere. We're not doing anything. But there's more important things in life that we need to discuss and we need to discover. And uh, that's that's really where I, I, I put you in that category, Matt. That's that's exactly I, I love hearing that because that's exactly where um, that's the message that I'm wanting people to hear. That's what I'm I'm striving to pursue myself, and I'm trying to I want people to join me on that journey. I want more people who who recognize that. I had someone one commented on one of my uh, one of the King Pilled YouTube videos. And uh, his name's Clockwork Industries. He's one of our, that's just his YouTube name. Uh, he's one of our, our, our biggest followers. You can follow him at MFG Liberty on, on Twitter. Um, he said, unless you have the power to take over the system, which none of us do, you gain power through individual responsibility, building wealth, power, and influence, preferably in a method you enjoy. Then you help others do the same thing. Family, friends, build communities to prop each other up to weather the coming storm or collapse. Build autonomy, practice agorism when applicable, learn self-sufficiency and practical skills, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. This is the best sentence. You have to build security inside the system so when it falls, you can remain and rise from it. Jason Stapleton likes to say that whenever when the world is burning down around me, how can I be the one who's standing on top of the ashes? And, and that's the that's that's the vision. I, and I, I took that screenshot and I, or I took a screenshot of that comment. I tweeted out. I said, this is the king pill. This this is it. There's there's other parts too, where you get the monarchy and all that kind of thing. But this is the fundamental message that I want people to take away: that this is the path forward. And you could talk about this in a spiritual context, or you can talk about it in a purely pragmatic context. Even in a pragmatic context, say you take over the Libertarian Party, say you get this big movement, you get this big exciting fervor going. You're not going to be directed. This is the, the message of politics. You're not going to be directed by the passion of the people who are fighting, trying to share this message. You're going to be directed by who those, by where those with money want you to go. Mm -hmm. Every single thing that you do is going to require funding. It's going to be dictated by funding, by special interests. And even if, even if you get to the point where you have, you've taken over this party, you've got a huge chunk of the vote, you know, you're really just, you're, you're now a heavyweight in the ring battling. You're not going to maintain control of that party. There's no way because political parties don't exist for the sake of the people who are within them. Political parties exist for the people who control them. And you control a political party once you've earned the right to do so. And you earn that right to do so. I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that your right is what you can accomplish, is what you can do when you take initiative and you put yourself in a position to do it, whether it's right or wrong. You know, whether exercising your right is right or wrong is neither here nor there. I'm not advocating for the rightness or the wrongness of it. I'm describing the reality of it. Do you have to put yourself in a position where you can dictate what a political party does? Because that's what it is. It's a tool for people who already have power and influence, and they want to consolidate it and focus it on a specific given task. I'm trying to go, I'm trying to think above and beyond that. I, this, this, empire is collapsing. This regime is collapsing. 
mm-hmm. and it's going to morph into something else because regimes don't really actually collapse. The people within them just morph and shift and go somewhere else. You have to think of it as the, the actual people who are inside it. So our perspective of the regime is going to be that it has collapsed. But that's just because the people who the engine of the regime just removed their investment from it and trans, transferred it to something else. And that will be the new regime. So the question is, where are you going to be in that new regime? Are you going to be bolted on to this one because you're so heavily invested in it? And when it collapses, you go with it? Or are you going to be someone who can, are you going to already have a lifeboat so that when this regime sinks, as the wealthy and powerful remove their support from it, and it collapses and it sinks and it drops to the bottom of the ocean, are you going to have your lifeboat that you can, you can paddle away from it? And then you can go you know, build your own regime or go occupy some position of security and liberty in the new order. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where um, I'm trying to get people to focus. That's where I'm trying to get people to look because the price, I said this on Wealth, Power, and Influence we recorded this morning, the price of not controlling your own life is getting higher and higher. Very soon, it's going to become impossible for you to maintain even the pretense of of self-governance if you haven't done the work to earn the right to be able to do that. It's going to become, it's going to, we're we're getting to the point where um, if you want to participate in society, you're going to have to pledge allegiance to the regime. You're going to have to bend the knee and accept the um, accept the prescribed manner of pledging allegiance to the regime. To be able to, to, to exist within it, you're going to have to pledge allegiance to it. You have to be able to transcend it. You have to be able to move, whether physically or digitally or psychologically. You have to be able to pull up roots and relocate yourself to somewhere where you can actually fight to preserve your own liberty on the, on the battlefield that actually matters, not in the political re- realm, mm-hmm. but in the realm that leads to the political realm within the culture, within your family, within your local communities. That's, that's where the actual battle is fought. And if you aren't equipped by building wealth, power, and influence, then you're going to lose both of them. Right. Right. And that's the conversation uh, I mentioned my wife again, I have with her all the time is that, you know, she she wants to go to all these political meetings. She'll go to school board meetings because, you know, they're talking about kids having to wear masks at school. And I'm like, you don't have any influence there. You don't have any pull. All you are is another voice in the noise. So why waste your time on that? It doesn't make any sense to me. And so I agree with you. I wanted to backtrack some of your thought process because I first discovered this. I was reading a book by Leonard Reed. And uh, he was basically talking about libertarianism, the ideology, and then he's talked about the Libertarian Party. And it was like an apparent contradiction. Okay, if you are a libertarian, then your ideology is we don't want government. We want to be independent. We want to be self-governed. Then why would you step foot into a system that is basically a sandbox where the government is? He pointed this out in the 1970s. I forgot the name of the book, but it makes no sense to have a libertarian party if you really want to be a libertarian. So that opened my eyes. And then just hearing, you know, just the, these latest conversations, like, well, I need to focus on something else. That's why, you know, when Jason Stapleton, the, you know, the saying goes, he broke off, but he, he just, he kind of did his own thing. He never changed his ideology, but he, focused on that wealth, power, and influence that you just talked about. And, and that was another thing that one of my mentors taught me a long time ago. I didn't understand it at the time. But he said, Mike, if you have more money, you have more freedom. That's just how it works. 
and he was right. And it took me a while to understand that. But just like what you're saying, you know, you need to become self-governing, governed, and not worry about the system as it collapses. Yeah. Liberty isn't something you ask for. Liberty isn't something that you request from someone else. This is even like, even on the level of like property rights, you don't have property rights if other people don't agree to respect them. Mm-hmm. And those other, so there has to be some incentive for those other people to agree to respect them. And that's either going to be they are spiritually inclined to, which again, you don't control, or you are so threatening that they, it, the, the cost is too much for them to violate, to aggress on your, on your property, to violate your property rights. Property rights are ultimately sustained through violence, through the capacity for violence. Mm-hmm. You don't actually have to use that violence. It just has to be present. This is like the, the mutually assured destruction concept is, is built on this. So that, that's, that's what wealth is. Wealth isn't just money. Wealth is the ability to do what you want and afford the consequences for it. So you don't necessarily have to use violence to be able to actually secure your property. You just have to have the capacity for it. You have to be someone who could use violence and come out ahead. That's mm-hmm. a wealthy person. Poor people don't use violence and come out ahead. Eventually, it works against them. For poor people, even having the capacity to use violence will often make them will often make them a target. They'll be they'll be set back. Right. So so wealth is wealth is applicable on this very practical basic level of of property rights. All of this and this is just human beings how human beings arrange themselves. This is how they've always arranged themselves. It's inevitable that human beings are going to arrange themselves. Under the, under the head of a powerful figure, under the head of a powerful, um, uh, it's, it can be a, an actual physical figure, an actual like dictator, or it can be a, a metaphorical or abstract figure. Like our current society is tyrannized by the, 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 the hypothetical ideal individual. Mm-hmm. Our, our king, the one we all bend the knee to, is this like abstracted um, uh, like theory of the capital I individual, which is the kind of the product. I mean, I know I'm getting super philosophical here, but this is the, this is like the product of the Enlightenment. The product of classical liberalism is that um, is that humanity attempted is, is is attempting and has created a god made in the image of man to mm-hmm. replace God Himself. So this is the the church through the through the course of the last several several centuries couple millennia has evolved to this point aspects of the church it's we're, we're all descendants of the christian church and i mean we're all christians now you know if that's if that's a like what, what who is it said we're all keynesians now in the same sense we're all christians now mm-hmm. so um we're all operating within a christian superstructure or the christian morality we're all building on um with this christian scaffolding and uh so what we have now is rather than us all being um being uh, arranged with respect to the king of kings, we're arranged with respect of, a, of like an imposter king, this mm-hmm. hypothetical ideal individual who um, everyone compares as individuals. They, they have this, this, this abstract, oh, this, the, the perfect ideal individual would look like this and have these character traits. And, and so we need to create institutions to craft individuals, to, to craft people into the ideal individual. Um, there's, there's a lot of fascist overtones to this as well, that the, the role of the state is to create the ideal man that's kind of baked into our system now. Right. So um, we, you will always be subservient to a, a king. 
And it's a matter of you get to choose which king you're going to be subservient to. So that's and then and violence is arranged and 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 and, and held captive to that king. So uh, your property rights begin with your ability to either support yourself or make yourself subservient to or the property of someone who's stronger and more powerful and will will protect your property rights for you. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, how in the Machiavellian's book it talks about the 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 circulation of the elites, right? There's always going to be somebody in charge, and I can go back to scripture at the same time, you know, because obviously in scripture they talk about the king of kings, right? But then they talk about powers and principalities, and there's governments. And if you go back to First Samuel, you know, the, the Israelites uh, they were warned not to have a king, but they wanted to be like every other nation out there, right? And so people are always going to want to have a king, like you're mentioning, and so. That this whole concept of being an anarchist, I'm not going to have any king, you know, that's just, it, it can't happen because you're always going to have that. You're always going to have those powerful people there. So I think you mentioned this before, um, you know, you can either, maybe it was on Jason's show, but you can either be, you know, powerful, wealthy, and and have influence, or you can basically kind of be, you know, on a pleb. You know, you can basically be, I, I'm not going to be anybody and I can still live my life as freely as possible. Because I think once you cross a threshold where you start to threaten the government, that's when you're going to see the power come after you, like you mentioned. Right. Yeah. The, the, you can be wealthy and, um, and, and potentially influential. Cause like influence to me, I would see as being something that's kind of like, like energy where it's either, well, you can have kinetic energy or you can have potential energy mm-hmm. and influence is like you can have kinetic influence or you can have potential influence. And uh, if you have potential influence, you don't have to exercise it. You could be very choosy about when you exercise it. And the best way to retain it, to keep yourself in that position is not to make yourself a threat to the established power. That's one thing that uh, there's a, we've fallen under the, we're like held captive by the mythology of liberalism, but the revolutions are not sources of freedom. Revolutions are the means by which a regime breaks down um, like cancerous necrotic structures within its institutions and rebuilds them and, and enhances its power. Right. This is the way every it's called a revolution. It starts a, here and it comes right circle. back around. It's a circle. Yeah. So revolutions are actually tools of the elites. You mentioned the circulation of the elites from Pareto. Revolutions are tools by which some members of the elites weaponize the masses against the other members of the elites. This is every single revolution has always been this. And then they, the winners tell, write the history books, right? So, so the, the, those new elites tell a story about how they were actually the, you know, the, the underdogs that maybe, maybe they were the underdogs, but they were the, you know, they were the downtrodden, um, you know, that, that had this great, fantastic mythology, how we overthrew oppression. And, and um, now we, now we reign and we've given, you know, the libertarians say, we want to take over the world and lead you, leave you alone. There's this instinct that we're going to, we're the underdog and we're going to take over the world. Well, if you take over the world, you aren't the underdog anymore. So this, this, this idea is baked into our heads that it's always the elites who are the ones who are in power by definition. That's just, mm-hmm. you, you don't remove that. You're going to have elites who are in power no matter what. So the question is, are you going to be a member of the elites or are you not? Just because you're a member of the elites doesn't mean you have to be um, bound to the system. I would consider you a member of the elites if you were completely removed from the system altogether, like the Amish. I would mm-hmm. consider the Amish members of the elites. They're completely self-contained. Nobody has any reason to have anything against them. They're left alone. They can live however they choose. They've chosen to live in a very specific way, and you may not choose to live the way that they do. 
That just means that you have a new task set out for you, which is how do you carve out the lifestyle you want while maintaining a position where you are in control of your future, not the regime. And it's possible that you may never be able to be fully in control of your future and you have to accept that. And that's where the king of kings comes in. That ultimately, you know that no matter who the king is, I am always a child of the king, capital K. The Bible doesn't say, doesn't tell Christians to go out and throw over, overthrow kings. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say to go out and, and that, that there's not supposed to be any government. Actually, it's the opposite. Right. It says, it says respect Romans, the government. Well, well, in Romans 13, it says submit, which I've right. talked to a, a Christian anarchist, and the words submit and obey are two different meanings. So, <laughs> Right, right. You don't have to obey it. You don't have to make yourself a part of it, but you, you, you're called to submit to it. In fact, I, I started thinking about this because I used to have that exact opposite position, that that was a that that uh, the like you know, First Samuel eight, like you mentioned, is oh God says no kings, you know. Well, notice that God his his what he had a problem with was not that they wanted a king; it's that they wanted to be like all the other nations mm-hmm. because they didn't just want a king. A king to them wasn't like a king the way we think of it. A king to them was literally a god. Right. They, they right. said we want a king who will go ahead of us and fight our, in like in our, with our armies. When we go into battle, he will ride ahead of us and he will fight for us. They, they were appealing to, they were saying, we don't want you anymore. We want a king. We want a God to replace you. That was the problem. It wasn't, we want to reorganize the governance structure in our society. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, we want to have a, uh, uh, we want to, we want to, uh, uh, what is it like rearrange our corporate structure kind of, it wasn't, it's not like God's, oh, no, no, you can't have a king. You know, you can arrange it any way you want, but no king. You know, it's, it's, we, they wanted uh, to replace God. And that was where, that was what that was, was speaking towards. So um, throughout all of scripture, humans are, are humans. People are, are consistently commanded to respect authority. They're consistently starting with, within your family mm-hmm. and general. And, and Paul, when he wrote Romans 13, when he said, submit to the government, it's, I think it's worthwhile to think of who the government was then. The emperor of Rome at the time was Caligula. Right. <laughs> so it wasn't like Paul wasn't aware of tyrannical power and its, mm-hmm. and its threats. He was saying, this isn't the fight. This isn't where you need to be focused. Don't worry about it. Don't make yourself an enemy of the regime just to piss it off. Be true to the gospel. Mm-hmm. And when you have to choose between the gospel. And when you have to choose between the king of kings and the king, then you choose the king of kings. But don't put yourself purposely afoul of the king just for funsies. The fact that God is that, that God is, is the king of kings sort of implies there's an inevitability that there are other kings. He can't be the king of kings if there aren't other kings. Right. So if this isn't like he's king of this hypothetical thing that doesn't actually exist. That's not much of a much of a, of a, of a form of praise. You know, it's like he's 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 king of the Marvel universe. Okay, like you know, he's like the Marvel universe doesn't exist. The the kings exist, so he's the king of kings. Sure. So uh, you mentioned you're getting back into your Christian uh, theology. Were you were you raised in a Christian family? Very. Yeah, I was raised. It, it's, there's there's kind of an irony here because uh, I was raised in a a very it was a very conservative, um, socially culturally very conservative. Um, but it was a very kind of radical Protestant um, denomination, Seventh Day Adventism, and uh, so I was I was just about as 
far forward in the Reformation as you can get, kind of, is where I was raised. But it was very, very culturally and socially conservative. And I was I was very devout. I mean, I've been baptized twice. I was baptized as a young boy. And then I felt like I'd kind of gone astray. And in high school, I was baptized again because mm-hmm. I wanted, I was like renewing my commitment. And um, I ended up going to a really conservative school, uh, a, a, a denominational school. And um, then the college I went to was, was the same. I went to a, a, an evangelism school. I went and spent a while um, doing, going door to door, giving Bible studies. Oh, wow. I went over to Europe and participated in a school in Norway um, focused on agriculture. And we did uh, evangelist and evangelistic series in Sweden. Yeah, I was very, very active in the church. Um, throughout my my early years and into my twenties, and then throughout the twenty my twenties, I kind of drifted away from it. And it was actually studying politics and and studying, trying to get at the roots of liberalism, was mm-hmm. what led me back to the church. And now, thanks to Venermani and um, a couple other people that I've encountered recently, who are all um, another buddy of mine named Josh, all people who are affiliated with the Orthodox Church they kind of like were just dropping little tidbits in my ear. And so I kind of started studying it and coming at it from the metaphysical point. It was the fact that they're, they're so um, comfortable with a mystical world mm-hmm. is what has really drawn me to the Orthodox church. And, um, and so then I've, I've, I've had a lot of, of really profound experiences over the last several months through that. That's awesome. So I was raised a Lutheran and uh, then kind of like you, I had a falling out for a long time. And uh, now I'm actually a, a Mormon LDS. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, and, and there's a lot of differences between Orthodox and, and, and Mormon theology. I'm not going to care to go over all those right now, but I, uh, I really, I stumbled onto that podcast, uh, Lord of Spirits. Yes. And what I really like is what you're saying is it, it actually brings into mysticism. I mean, there's a lot of mysticism within my own faith, but sometimes I feel like uh, in a regular Sunday school they won't get into some of the the real deep mystical stuff that the podcast uh, talks about, and. Uh, it makes me realize going back to the same thing with the King and Kings um, politics and religion are the same thing. I think that's something you said before too. Yep. So I'm working on this thought process, this article I want to write about how, you know, you can't have a separation of church and state because people will think of the state as their religion. You know, yes. That, that, yes. That, it's, it's, it's all the same to me. Uh, but you, you know, you said a God-shaped hole in people's hearts, right? If if they don't have a religion, if they don't have a theocracy, if they don't have uh, something that they worship on a regular basis, they're going to replace it with something. And most of the time, it's going to be the state. It's going to be something. So it it just it opened my eyes big time as to how all this stuff is all related. And, and I don't think I would have been down this rabbit hole if it wasn't for some of the events that transpired over the last eighteen months. You know? Yes, the last uh, to me now it's kind of like the the way to identify how much you can take someone seriously is the extent to which they've been affected by the last 18 months. Mm-hmm. If, if the last 18 months hasn't dramatically transformed your view of the world, uh, even if you were already kind of onto some stuff and it was just kind of like confirming your, confirming your, your, your biases or something like that, either way, uh, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, if, if, you, if you don't see how much the world is changing and it is the, the, the way that it's pulling back the curtain, and revealing the the Wizard of Oz, uh, then then you know you you, sh- you should you should start looking and you should start looking very very soon. But the uh, we said about Lord of Spirits. That's I'm going back through and listening to it again because I just can't get enough of it. And what it's really made clear to me is that um, I tweeted the other day that um, I think I said um, 
I think I said doctrine is not religion. Hmm. And this is all comes. I keep, I'll keep repeating myself. It keeps coming back to, to the roots of classical liberalism. It, it, as, as Westerners, as descendants of the liberal tra- tradition, we want to intellectualize everything. We, we, we exist perpetually in the world of theory and, and, uh, and ideas. This is the, this is us living in the age of science, you know, know, capital S science, the little trademark symbol. It's, it's corporatized science. It's, it's like ever present in our mind is, is a desire. We, we, we abstract everything away from the real world and we imagine ourselves in a hypothetical world. And we imagine like, what would be the engineering properties of this hypothetical world? And then, Without like connecting it to the real world, we just act as if we're in that hypothetical world. So you have people. Pete Quinones has said says that uh, it's people living in Ancapistan in their heads. This this phenomenon exists with more than just Ancaps or, or or libertarians. They're just it's 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 fractal. You know, it exists at every level of the human experience, mm-hmm. um, and it's just it manifests itself that way for them. We uh, Christianity, the the Bible, is not a book of abstract doctrines you know it's not it's not like a like an intellectual exercise that you engage with and you have you know the difference between beliefs and thoughts again it's christianity isn't something that you think it isn't mm-hmm. that you have a whole bunch of these data points and you like mentally say yes i believe that's true christianity is something that you live it's mm-hmm. something that you that is embodied in your behavior you are part of a tradition it's very real. This is a historical phenomenon. You are part of a tradition that was started by real literal historical events that transpired 2000 years ago, but it started even before that. This is a continuation of a trend for thousands of years back. It's, it's, it's real. This is a historical story that you mm-hmm. get to participate in. And you mentioned identity and, and a thought that popped in my head, and I want to be able to say it before we got to the end here, is that identity... When you're looking for your tribe, your identity is a, is a paradox because it's the thing that you use to identify yourself. You say like, my name is, mm-hmm. you set yourself apart from the group by saying, my name is Matt. Your name is Mike. We are not, we are set apart from the group, but that's not what we call ourselves. When, when you say like in, in Spanish, they don't say, what is your name? They say, um, what are you called? So it implies your identity implies other people who define your identity for you. Sure. So, so identity is paradoxical like this, where you're, you're, when you, when you define your identity, you're actually identifying what you're identifying with a group of people by identifying yourself isolated from that group of people. So your, your identity is the group of people with whom you're identified and what makes those people unique or distinct. It's their actions. It's the actions that they participate in as a body, as a collective together. There was something from Nassim Taleb that, 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 that really clicked for me, this idea that human groups act different at different scales. Mm. You can actually think of a group of people as its own standalone entity, like it has its own consciousness as an entity unto itself. So 10 people is a different entity, entity than 5,000 people. 5,000 sure. people is a different entity than 20,000, et cetera, all the way up. So when you you participate in the church, you are becoming a part of a body. You're becoming a part of an entity. Mm -hmm. This is a historical entity that has lived for thousands of years. And many, many different people have plugged themselves into that identity 
but it exists whether they're plugged into it or not. Sure. That, that understanding was, was really powerfully transformative for me. It's interesting that you, you break it down like that, because even within the church, I'm not just talking denominations, but uh, I mean, I can, I can probably break down mine more easier than anyone, but uh, you know, we have, um, we have the church, right? The headquarters in Salt Lake City. And then we have what we call stakes, right? So our, it's a geographical location where everyone has a certain uh, you know, commonality because where they live. And then we break it down to ward buildings. It's like a congregation, right? And even in the congregation, you have like uh, elders, you have a quorum of elders, or you have a quorum of priests, or you have you know, the women's group we call Relief Society. So you know, your identity can be following up the chain all the way up to the top you know, as a church body, which I think is very interesting the way you said that. So, yeah, it's it. This exists at a and it's a fractal level. You know, it goes. It's the exact same form at the micro level and all the way up to the macro. And the the macro level informs the micro, and the micro informs the macro. And again, mm-hmm. you get this. This uh, this is what's so powerful to me about the the um, nature of the Trinity, and that it's that that God is both one and three at the same time. That that distinction doesn't mean division. Uh, so you can have um, the you, you you can have these identities at various levels of scale that um, that are, are are like I don't know it's like it's like they're they're quantum connected and they they they're irreducible from each other even if you have distinct numbers of groups they still the, the principles are still the same at every fractal level it begins with the family and that's really I think where where um, libertarians if we make this like pra- pra- practical to libertarians specifically the when you think of yourself as an individual, it's not just that it's a it's flawed um, philosophically. It's that it leads you to um, it's it's not it's not pragmatically useful. It doesn't yield you good results when you act that way. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I think the fundamental unit of society is the family. You can't break it down any further than that. You are always identified by your. Um, your relational binds. And this is where I think the, the emphasis on freedom is wrongheaded because you aren't free in that sense. You are, mm-hmm. you are always um, it, like inescapably bound by obligations to other people. From the moment that you're born, you are obligated to other people. You are to, to, to treat them in a specific way, to give to respect, decency, all these things that are, you are naturally um, bound to. This is what when they try to talk about the social contract. This is what they're trying to get at. That there's this implicit knowledge that you you owe a certain behavior toward the people around you, and mm-hmm. if you fulfill that responsibility to them, you have the right to be treated in a specific way. When we start with rights, you've got it backwards. It begins with responsibility. Sure. If you take responsibility, you have the right to be rewarded. There's natural cause and effect. You have the right to be rewarded for taking that responsibility. But if you begin with the rights, I have a right to this, then there's nobody around to take responsibility. And this is where we've gotten with democracy. The bill just gets passed around all over the place and nobody takes responsibility. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, responsibility is power, but nobody wants to take responsibility because they don't want to be told you are responsible for your life. Right. You are responsible for where you are, and which is empowering because that means you have the power to put yourself somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You have to begin with responsibility. If you start with responsibility, you're starting with power. You're saying you have, you have power and you need to use it. You need to use it properly. You need to use it well. And if you do, you'll be rewarded. 
that's what your right is. Your right is to be rewarded for fulfilling your own responsibilities. You know, it's interesting because this conversation probably wouldn't be had in many other cultures of the world. And I, and I say that because currently the book I'm reading is uh, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talks about where morality comes from. You know, in a Western civilization, it's very individual, like you mentioned, right? But in other cultures, you know, it's, he says that there's three basic ethics of morality. There's, in, there's autonomy, I think, which is individualism. There's community. And then there's divinity, Right. And so in other places of the world, you know, where do you get your morality from? Well, in the Western civilization, we've been taught, he talks about mainly Western uh, civilizations at a secular level. Like there's a lot of, I'll just use Americans, a lot of Americans who, you know, we might be in the Christian framework, right? But they don't think of Christianity as their religion. You know, they're secular thinkers. So it's an individual. That's why in American, American libertarianism is an individual basis. I would gather to say that if there was anybody who would fit the category of libertarianism in other cultures, you know, family, you know, extended family, uh, the community that you live in. Right. And then, of course, the uh, the, the moral, the morality comes from divinity. Right. It's, it's, it's really cool. That's a bad. I really like that breakdown. I keep hearing. I, I know a lot about the book, having never read it. But I'd never actually encountered that breakdown. Um, it was autonomy, community, and divinity. I'm gonna that's that's going into the that's going into the into the thought banks to to be chewed on for a little while. That is a I like that. I like that a lot. the The thought that occurred to me while you were talking was um, oh, it's it's slipping away. You were talking about uh, America, the American. Um, the American way of thinking about it versus other, other, the family. Ah, I lost it. <laughs> I lost the thought. Well, in the book, it breaks down. It's really interesting. As you've recommended some books to me, I'll recommend that one to get because <laughs> there's like 25 books I could be reading right now. But I mean, <laughs> it, it breaks down like, uh, you know, the way Americans think on a moral basis versus like they use the Indian culture, uh, for example. You know, and then they have all these different stories about, uh, you know, how a, a man should treat his wife uh, based on the American version, based on the, on, the, on the Eastern philosophy. Right. And so I don't want to get into all that minutia. You can you can go ahead and read the book. But for the listeners, it, uh, it's, it's really interesting because it uh, it really tells you that, you know, certain people have certain moral compasses, but that's not just based on one thing. There's a whole bunch of things that go into it, you know. Yeah, your presuppositions that you, the, the way that you view the world, um, inf- will inform your moral code. And 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 the Western American mindset. This is kind of what I was thinking of. The Western American mindset is very materialist. It's rooted in in materialism, which was a, a a consequence of kind of the rise of atheism and and the the people trying to transcend Christianity in the 17th and 18th century, but still operating or 17 and 1800s, but still operating from a, it's like they wanted to preserve Christian morality. They wanted to preserve the Christian moral outcomes, but they wanted to be able to do it without having to worry about Christian doctrine and all that kind of thing. They wanted sure. to, to, they, they treated it as if it was, as if it was like the self-evident standalone. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. It was that the concept of atheism was something that was derived through the church because mm-hmm. Prior, like in basically all of human history, there wasn't a concept of atheism. Like you didn't believe in no gods. Like that wasn't a thing. It was nobody believed in no gods. Um, and and then there was also the the uh, um, this, this this the secular this concept of the secular. So you have a 
um, we have this stuff very segmented in our mind. Again, this is the liberal thing where we want to we want to um, categorize and create lists, and we want to we want to try to deduce the entire world around us to a, a set of lists that we can engage with, and and we want to intellectualize everything. But for like all of human history, religion didn't even exist. It, it, the, the way we think about it, like you said, you look in an encyclopedia and it says, um, it'll break down, you know, I don't know, like some tribe in Peru or something, and it'll give their, um, you know, like their economy and maybe it's like agriculture and it'll give their, their, um, like their different, their, their social structures or whatever. And it'll, then it'll have their religion. And most societies in human history didn't think of religion that way. Right. Religion was just who you are and how you behaved. It was just, it was an unspoken kind of, it was just the thing, the word religion is, um, means to bind or like that, which binds. So it was just like the natural way that you viewed the world that kept your tribe or your, your society together. So through the, the, the rise of liberalism and, and really, I think, I think it was seen most clearly in, um, uh, Descartes when he said, I think therefore I am the, the, mm -hmm. the cogito ergo sum that number one, that's a non sequitur. He didn't, so I, th I think therefore I am, that doesn't like thinking happened and I was aware of it. It's kind of is maybe more, more accurate, mm -hmm. but from there, it, so it said like human consciousness is the baseline and your individual experience is, is, is um, the subjective individual experience of it is um, that from which everything else flows. So from there, morality is inevitably going to be uh, like a, a personal expression, a matter of personal expression. But just because that's the way you think about it doesn't remove the fact that we have morality baked into us. Like as, as Christians, we believe it's because we're, you know, we're made to image God. He created us. So, so his, his character, his nature is baked into us. So um, people have natural moral instincts, whether it's going to be a, on a collective level or, an, or level or, or an individual level or a tribal level. But the way that the, the West has now... Um, like the rest of the world are all just kind of like colonies of the West. The West is, has really taken over the, the popular consciousness and it's really um, seeped into just about, about everything. But I think what we're seeing now is a rise in people understanding the flaws of the, the Western liberal individualist materialist viewpoint. People are beginning to see, like recognize this is where it takes us. It's taken us into an era of, insane mystical superstition and um and like like people are, are are inventing completely deranged rituals that everyone has to participate in this is all super mystical it's all um we, we, you know you mentioned the church and the state earlier every every church will inevitably function in some way as a state because the state is the is the thing that that uh um plays the role of determiner of morality morality is is, is baked into it it's inevitably a part of it and every state will eventually create a church if it doesn't already have one or will use one that exists. So saying that we have a separation of church and state um, actually makes things worse because it makes us think that that's the case when it's very clearly not. Right. Now we have a state that's functioning as a church. You have doctrines, you have dogmas, you have specific ritual ceremonies that you have to participate in in order to be saved. There's original sin. There's damnation, there's purgatory, there's blasphemy. There are all these different things are all present in our existing state and um, in our, our existing state in, in, in more than one sense, you know, in, in, the, in our state of being and in our actual state. Sure. These things are inevitable and it's becoming clear to people, I think, to a lot of people that 
you can't intellectualize these things away. This mystical aspect of the world, um, the the nature of God, all of these things are it's the the truth is what's always going to come to the surface, and it's coming to the surface. And um, I, I'm glad for it. I think that it's going to be good for over the next few decades as people kind of transcend the mystic the, or the 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 materialist science. Like everything has to to be um, sacrificed on the altar of science, and we can we can rationally deduce and decode the entire universe. And you know the 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 mind of mankind is the most powerful thing in the universe. All this kind of thing is 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 it's tedious and it's tired and it's. I'm looking forward to being able to to kind of gather together with groups of people who are going through um, like a new great awakening. There's kind of a new great awakening happening, and we're we have the opportunity to to explore these things and 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 to connect with people doing that. Um, and I'm really excited about. It. I'm very optimistic in the long run about the future. I think in the short run, I think things are going to be pretty rough, but um, we have the opportunity. We've been blessed with an opportunity to do um, to do much more and and to accomplish much more. Sorry, ma'am. I'm hearing you. I think my camera just froze, so I switched to my computer, and that's really poor video quality right there. It's all good. I figured I figured something was going on, so I just tried to I just tried to talk and keep things going while you were while you're fixing I, I, it. I, I don't know if I can go back while I'm actually doing this right now. Well, I'll, you know what? I'm going to wrap it up just because it's been over an hour. But uh, shoot, you and I, man, I wish you didn't live in California because I just went out there uh, in June to see my brother. He moved to California and. But uh, I'd love to be able to grab a grab a drink with you and just talk for hours. I think we could uh, we could do that. Let's make it happen sometime, man. We're not going to be in, in California forever. We're going to be um, our lease is through the fall of 2023. But if we get an opportunity to to peace out before then, then we're going to jump on it. Cool, cool. Well, one of the things I, I mentioned when I started the show today is that I'm trying not to just dwell on uh, on politics and libertarian thought. Uh, I, I am an entrepreneur. Uh, I'm, I'm going to let you plug uh, some of the things you're working with Jason Stapleton, uh, along with, you know, your obviously your own brand again. Um, but, uh, you know, I, for the last, it's probably taking me way too long to, to come to terms with what I want to do in the future. But I've been independent. Uh, in other words, I haven't had a boss and I had my own, as Jason says, control your own income. I've had my own income source for quite some time. But I haven't gotten to that point where I, I know what's going to take me to that next level. And so mm. I want to give you a chance to plug some of your ideas with, uh, you know, what you're doing with Jason. Uh, and I'm sure because you're a part of that and everything like that. And, um, you know, what, leave some thoughts on what we can do as individuals to kind of have this autonomy, you know, in, in order to create wealth, power and influence. You know, I know that's not your uh, your tagline or anything, but. <laughs> but I, I fully I fully embody it. It's it's my um, I'm, I'm very proud to be able to work with Jason on the stuff that we're doing. We're. We're doing some really, really fun stuff. That's that's st- the last couple of years. There's been some low times. It's been it's been rough as we're as we're kind of inventing or or even I'm not inventing like discovering this path as we're you know some of this stuff is being made clear to us and we sometimes you just kind of have to suffer and, and struggle through uh, trying times to to make great discoveries and to to have great opportunities. So. Um, I'm very proud to be working with Jason. I'm glad I it's it, every day we get to wake up and we get to help people and I get to hear how people have been helped through what we're doing. So um, that's very rewarding. We have the podcast, Wealth, Power, and Influence with Jason Stapleton. You can get it on any podcatcher. Uh, you can get it on YouTube as well. Uh, we record the show live every Wednesday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, we stream it live onto our, our private platform, Nomad Network. And 
uh, we're actually in the process of building, and then the, the episode gets posted out publicly everywhere the following Monday. Um, but we're actually building a brand new custom app. It's going to be our own app. You can go on the app store. We're not we're not piggybacking off of anybody else. It'll be our own very own app. You'll be able to search for it and join it. And we're going to have free access. But prior to now, we haven't been able to do it do have free access because we have to pay for people to be on the platform. Mm-hmm. But uh, but now things are changing, and we're going to be able to offer access to, um, to people for free. This is a this is a very unique social media platform. It's not it's not like any other um, uh, platform you've been a part of. It's very positive, very, there's no ads or anything. It's very, um, uplifting and focused on people who are in the business of controlling the source of their income and creating wealth, power, and influence for themselves. People who have, have, who have, uh, transcended this idea that we need to, um, go beg someone else to give us Liberty. And they've just put their head down and they're creating it for themselves by controlling the source of their income, making that income mobile, and then joining together with a community of people who are doing the same thing. Uh, I said this before, I'm, I'm starting to repeat myself on this a lot, but I really like this framing that uh, when you you can increase your wealth vertically or you could do it horizontally. When you do it vertically, here's where the really cheesy entrepreneur phrase comes. When you do it vertically, you increase your net worth. And then when you do it horizontally, you increase your net work. Both ways are ways that you can you can increase your wealth. Ideally, you do it both ways. You do both together. So you 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 personally increase your own wealth through acquiring specialized skills and um and then and putting yourself out, taking risks and providing great value to other people. And then um, when you're rewarded with opportunities from that, taking that and and capitalizing on it, reinvesting it back in yourself and making yourself even better so you can create even more value. Um, and then your network is, is is putting yourself together with a tribe of people who do the same thing. So that's what we're doing with the Nomad Network. Um, for now, you can go to um, mynomad.network and you can join. There's a, um, uh, or if you want to actually, yeah, just do that. Go to mynomad.network. You can just join up for for the for the time being and, and um, keep an eye out for the next several weeks. We're going to be launching the brand new app. Um, it's going to be really slick. And then, um, so that's that's everything for for the, the stuff that I do with Jason. On my own personal side, um, we have King Pill, the YouTube channel, coming soon as a as a, an audio podcast. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Real King Pilled, on Instagram at Real King Pilled. You can see pictures of my um, adorable uh, future God Emperor of the world, <laughs> young son nice. <laughs> Eastwood. Um, I've been posting some pictures of him there, and and I, I try to use that platform a little bit more. Um, but just in general, what I would tell people is uh, make make use of your time that you have. Don't squander it. Time is the, the only reason that you earn money is to buy more time. And eventually you're going to run out of time and there's no amount of, amount of money in the world that you could use to buy more. So take advantage of the time that you have now today. Like I said before, the time is going to come where um, there's going to be a collapse. There's going to be tyranny. There's going to be gulags of some kind or another. There's going to be bad stuff like that. But you don't have to participate in it. You can opt out. You can put yourself in a position where that doesn't happen to you. So maybe there is going to be a world war. That doesn't mean you have to fight in it. That doesn't mean you have to participate in it. Maybe there will be an economic collapse. That doesn't mean that you have to collapse yourself. Every time that there's an economic collapse, somebody profits from it and comes out ahead. There's there's specific techniques and there's specific things you can do to ensure that that's you. So above all, I would say don't waste your time. Get serious about putting yourself in position to control your own wealth, power, and influence, and then to increase it as much as possible, not for your own sake, 
but for the sake of your family, for the sake of your friends, for the sake of your community, and for the sake of the people who need what you have to offer. You have some sort of special skill. You have some sort of, of, um, of, of talent or gift or product or something that you can offer the world. And if you aren't offering it to people, you're depriving them of something that could make their lives better. So put yourself in a position to do that. And then um, if you, whether you're in the church or not, get serious about, um, about encountering God, whatever God means to you, get serious about it. Begin thinking in that, in those terms, begin thinking in terms of, of being a part of the body of Christ and what that could mean and how that could affect you. Um, and how that ties into the political world and, 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 and all that. Just start thinking along those lines. I just, it's very, very little. I'm not going to ask a lot. Just that. Just start thinking about it. Um, go listen to the Lord of Spirits podcast. Just start from the beginning and listen to it as like a, his, like a, like a history show. Mm-hmm. Like This is describing the history of the world. This is, there's archaeology. There's philosophy. There's crazy grammar stuff if you're a grammar nerd. There's, all, there's something for everybody in it, but it's a fantastic podcast. Read the Machiavellians. Um, by James Burnham. And yeah, I think that's, oh, Dominion by Tom Holland. That one as well. That's the next book on my list, by the way. I bought two. I bought that Righteous Mind and I bought Dominion. So (laughs) good. It's going to, it is going to transform the way that you see the world. Awesome. Well, may I have an initiation question for my tribe? Okay. Are you Invictus? I believe I am. Good enough. Awesome. That word means unconquerable. And everything that you just said is uh, how I fit that definition. So yes, make yourself unconquerable. I want to thank Matt Erickson for coming on the show today. And thank you all for listening. This was a great conversation. So thanks for your time, Matt. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. It's an honor. All right. 